0: It's good to be here with you people, the people of God. Uh, Pray with me. Father God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. They came to Jesus and they wanted to know which was the great commandment and you know his answer, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. This is the first commandment. The second is likened unto it. It's an extension of the first commandment. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. They are so tied up together that Jesus is communicating you can't really love God unless you love your neighbor and vice versa. It's in loving your neighbor that you're expressing your love for God. But love. What is love? That's a little harder to answer than than you think it might be. Uh, Love is a complex thing. Uh, Living in the United States, uh, we are indoctrinated with a romantic concept of love. Love is a romantic feeling. Uh, We have songs some enchanted evening, you will meet a stranger across a crowded room, and somehow you'll know. Smash, bam, alakazam, this wonderful thing happens. You ask your mother, mom? How will i know when i'm in love and every mother in america and i think this is probably true for every mother here in australia the mother says when you're in love that really clarifies everything doesn't it you'll know i mean you'll know and and, and somehow we're 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 curious as to what it really is uh, because love romanticism is certainly superficial. Let me just break it down to you as a sociologist. Uh, Romantic love is a very short-lived emotion. It lasts approximately uh, three and a half to four weeks, and then it begins to diminish in intensity, uh, which is why our marriages fall apart, because we get married on the basis of romance. We get turned on, and uh, romanticism is short-lived. The typical American has seven romantic turn-ons prior to marriage. Uh, Males have a bigger problem. Uh, They tend to fall in love more often and more intensely than women, as strange as that may sound. But uh, Shakespeare captures that, doesn't he? In Romeo and Juliet, remember the play starts with Romeo, head over heels in love with a woman named Rosalind. Rosalind, 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 and then all of a sudden, Juliet walks by. Rosalind, 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 Juliet. It shifted that quickly. It shifted that quickly. When Jesus talks about love, he's talking about something much more profound than romance. In the ancient world in which he lived, in which he taught, we had a variety of words for love. Your pastor has probably told you that there are varying words for love in the, in the Greek language. In the Aramaic language, uh, love. In Greek, uh, what we call romance is largely summed up with the word eros. We talk about erotic turn-ons. Secondly, there's another kind of love, a philos. Uh, It's a brotherly love. That's the place where we get the word Philadelphia, where I come from. The city of brotherly love. This is a kind of love that grows up between two people who are committed to the same thing. Imagine a triangle. Here's one point, here's the other point, here's the apex. One would say is the people at other at two points move closer and closer towards the apex. They move closer and closer to each other. I like to think that a Christian marriage is like that. That Christ is at the apex. And as the two persons move closer and closer to Jesus, they move closer and closer to each other. us to share a common commitment, a common goal, to work together. That's the second kind of love. And then there's this third kind of love that you've heard your pastor preach about, agape love. It's interesting to note that that word was very rarely used in the ancient world. As a matter of fact, when they came to translating the scriptures, they had difficulty because they couldn't find usages in the general population. Agape love. It's a special kind of love. Now, let me help you to unpackage what that agape love is. Real love, in the deepest sense, requires, first of all, the giving up of power. There is an inverse relationship between power and love. I don't know whether you've ever considered that fact. An inverse relationship between power and love. In any relationship, whoever loves the most has the least power. And if you're not willing to give up power, you can't love. The good news of the gospel is we've got a God who is willing to give up power in order to express his love. Read the second chapter of Philippians. He who thought it not robbery to be equal with God, speaking of Jesus. He had all the power of God at his disposal. He who thought it not robbery to be equal with God emptied himself. The word is kenosis in the original Greek language. He got rid of his power. He set aside his power and took upon himself the form of a servant. The word in the Greek language is doulos, which means slave. So here's the great God, the creator of the universe. He wants to express his love to us. But he can't express his love to us unless he gives up his power. And that's what he did in the Incarnation. It says in the second chapter of Philippians, he who had the power of God, who thought it not robbery to be equal with God, emptied himself of power and took upon himself the form of a servant or a slave. And one asks very simply this question, how much power does a slave have? No power at all. That's our God. This is an incredible fact. We've got a God who is willing to give up power voluntarily in order to express love. In any relationship, whoever loves the most has the least power. Let's talk about an existential situation. Here's a husband, here's a wife. She loves him desperately. He doesn't love her much at all. She loves him, he doesn't love her very much. Question, who's in a position of power? Who's in a position of control? He is. He is able to control her because she'll do anything to keep the relationship alive. She'll do anything to maintain the marriage. She'll bend over backwards to maintain the marriage. He doesn't care. The less he cares, the more power he has over her. The more power he exercises, the less love he is expressing. I mean, you've seen that, haven't you? You've seen that in marriages. As a matter of fact, how many marriages fall apart because of power plays? I don't know whether I can stay in this marriage any longer. He's too controlling. He's too controlling. He's playing power games with me all the time. Marriages fall apart because people are expressing power instead of love. You cannot express love and power simultaneously. That's an incredible fact. Incidentally, that was developed by the sociologist called Willard Waller. I, I love the name, Willard Waller. You wonder what kind of people with the last name Waller would name a kid Willard. That's not the half of it. Willard Waller was born and raised in Walla Walla, Washington. I mean, how would you, li- how would you like to be Willard Waller from Walla Walla? You know, I mean, it's, it's a horrible thing. But he called it the principle of least interest. In any relationship, whoever is most interested in maintaining the relationship has the least power. We got a God who's interested, who is committed to having a relationship with you. And so much so that he is willing to give up his power and take upon himself the form of a servant and made himself of no reputation. Now let me point out something that another sociologist says. We must differentiate between power and authority. Power is the ability to coerce. When the policeman in his patrol car pulls up alongside of me, weighs me over to the side of the road, and comes alongside of me, I obey him. I obey him because he has power. It's called a gun. And what he says, I do because I have to. I didn't want to pull over. I didn't want to surrender myself to him, but I did, because he has the ability to coerce. Authority is far different. If you do what I tell you because I have power, because I can force you, that's one thing. But suppose you do what I ask you because I have authority. Authority means obedience based on willingness. When Jesus comes to us, he comes to us not in power, but he does come with authority. If you were to ask Max Weber, from whence comes authority? Where does authority come from? How does it emerge? His answer would be simple it's through sacrifice. My mother had very little power over me when I grew up. A little Italian lady, I could have kicked her down the steps. But when she spoke, I obeyed. And the reason why I obeyed is because she had authority. And her authority was built on one theme, self-sacrifice. As I'm growing up, she's sacrificing over and over and over again. And the more she sacrificed for me, the more authority she had. Well, Weber would ask you, if self-sacrifice earns authority, who do you think has the greatest authority in time in history? Jesus. And so that passage is crucial. He who thought it not robbery to be equal with God emptied himself of power, took upon himself the form of a servant, a slave, made himself of reputation, humbled himself, sacrificed himself, even unto death. Even the death of the cross, there's no greater sacrifice for another than that, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. That's what Jesus did. The passage doesn't end there, does it? It goes on to say, therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But hear me, people. His lordship is not contingent on how much power he can exercise. His lordship is dependent upon what he earned on Calvary's hill. Because of his sacrifice on Calvary, every knee bows, every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, it's hard for us to grapple with this because we like to think that God is in control of everything, that he is exercising his power Over time in history, many of our hymns pick this up. Here's the heretical thought. We've got a God who has deliberately given up power in Jesus Christ. And he comes to us, not because I'm saying this, but because the scripture says to us. He doesn't come to us in power. He comes to us in weakness. That's what love requires. Love makes you vulnerable. And Jesus became vulnerable. It's hard for us to imagine a God who comes in weakness and vulnerability, but that's what the crucifixion is all about. The crucifixion is about a God who is willing to give up all power and surrender himself even unto death, even unto the death of the cross. And in so doing, in giving up his power and surrendering himself to death, he earns authority. When Jesus spoke, he spoke as one having authority As the church struggles here in Australia to try to bring concepts of morality operative in our society, there is a strong tendency to think that we can do it by gaining political power. Certainly in the United States, that's what's going on. We've got a whole movement in the United States of of, uh, the Christian right. And they have a simple solution to the whole problem. We've got immorality, we've got all kinds of problems. If we can just get enough power, we can impose righteousness on this nation. We can pass laws that will, in fact, coerce people into doing the right thing. Whenever the church resorts to power, it is re- betraying Jesus. Let me repeat that. Whenever the church resorts to power, it is betraying Jesus. Jesus could use power, he's got it at his disposal. Jesus is God. When he's on the cross, he didn't have to put up with that. We used to sing a hymn in my church. He could have called 10,000 angels. I don't know whether they sang that in your church. He could have called 10,000 angels. I got to tell you, they were lucky they had Jesus on the cross and not me. Because if I could have called 10,000 angels, I would have called them. I would have them show up with submachine guns to blow those suckers away once and for all because I have a problem. I am somebody who is easily seduced by power. Power is very seductive. And I'm afraid the church in the United States, the evangelical community itself, has been seduced with power. And they are so happy because they are primarily responsible for electing Donald Trump. Every political scientist would say, he would have never been able to win the presidency without the evangelicals. He is the first to admit it. And we have now power. We have power. But even as we play our power cards, even as we play our power cards, we know we're losing ground. We know we're losing ground. Well, now we've got the power, we can stop abortion. Do you really think you can? Do you think you can stop abortion simply by outlawing it? I'll tell you, if you want to stop the problem, you've got to have more than power. You've got to have authority. Are we willing to sacrifice for the poor? Are we willing to give ourselves to meet the needs of others? I was present in Washington when Mother Teresa came to speak at the National Prayer Breakfast. Congressman, president was there. Supreme Court people were there. All the big shots were there. And when she spoke, they listened with rapt attention. And when she spoke about abortion, they were awed. They rose to their feet and applauded. But she holds no power. She's a little, tiny, she was a little tiny lady. But when she spoke, she spoke as one having authority. And where did she get that authority? On the streets of Calcutta, picking up sick people, wiping the tears away from broken-hearted people, She had this incredible, this incredible authority. One of the problems I have with Christianity is we like to think that God is in control of everything. It's so easy when there's a tragedy to say, well, we must accept it as part of God's plan. God is in control. God is in control. Is God in control? Or has God given up the power to control let me tell you something that every one of you knows. If you're a parent, you know that if you love your child enough, there comes a point at which you have to give up control. You have to, in fact, say, I'm not going to force you anymore. I'm not going to control you anymore. How many children get ruined simply because parents rele- failed to release them, F- failed to to give them the privilege of making the decisions that determine their own destiny. I have children. I wish I could make all the decisions that ought to be made. They're making some bad decisions. And what I would like to do as a loving parent is move in and say, I'm going to force you to make the decisions that I want you to make. But when I do that, I ruin them. I have to give them the freedom to come of age. Dietrich Bonhoeffer talked about this when he said, the time has come for us to recognize we've got a God who expects us to grow up, to come of age, to express ourselves. A God that is not in control. That, I think, is the most disturbing thing that I can say to a Christian audience. And yet, we get trapped by our own rhetoric The atheist comes and says, do you believe that God is all-loving? And we response is, yes. How loving? Infinitely loving. How powerful? And instead of saying, well, he's given up his power in order to express his love, we say, oh, he's totally powerful. And then they've got us, haven't they? How can an all-powerful God who loves us infinitely allow these plagues, these cancers To exist? How can he allow a a hurricane, an earthquake? If God is so loving and all powerful, why does he let precious children die of cancer? The pastor of a church has a little boy in the church that's dying of cancer. The church has all night prayer meetings praying for the kid to be cured. This eight year old kid gets sicker and sicker and dies. And the father doesn't come to church anymore. And the pastor goes to see him and says, you, you, you're not coming to church? He said, I'm never coming to church again. He said, you can't give up on, on church because of what's happened. You can't give up on God because of what's happened. And the man says to the pastor, this is an actual story, don't get me wrong, I still believe in God. I don't come to church because I hate him. You say, that's a terrible thing to say. Indeed it is. But do you understand how a man who has a God who has all power, who with the snap of his finger could cure this kid of cancer and does nothing at all, even though the whole church has been pleading with him to heal this kid, he doesn't do a thing. And the kid dies in agonizing death. Where was God when this was happening? Where was God when this suffering was taking place? It's a fair question and all of us can make all kinds of wonderful statements about god being in control until it's your kid or your wife or your husband who's going through hell who's going through pain who's going through agony and you pray and pray and pray and say god you you can you can you can cure this god's in control a kid gets hit by a truck and at the funeral the pastor stands up and says We have to accept this as God's plan, God's will. A very famous preacher in America, his son died in a climbing accident in the Alps. And at the funeral, this Presbyterian minister was sitting there and the minister said, we must accept this as part of God's will, God's plan. And this minister stood up and the first time he ever said anything ugly in a church and yelled, the hell it was God's will. When my son died, God was the first one who cried. That's a very interesting question, isn't it? When suffering like this takes place, is this God's will? Is God a God who wills suffering and wills pain and wills death? Is this what God does? Or do we have to face the fact that we have a God, an all-powerful God? I'm not questioning his power. I'm saying we've got a God who refuses to use his power Because you can't express power and love at the same time. The more you love, the less power you exercise. The more you love, the less control you exercise. The more you love, the more vulnerable you become. And if you're not willing to become vulnerable, you can't love. Let me repeat that. If you're not ready and willing to become vulnerable, you can't love. When your daughter goes off to college and she calls home and says, I've met this wonderful guy, you get a little nervous. And you say, be careful. Be careful. Don't let yourself go. Because you know she's becoming vulnerable and will be easily manipulated into bed if she's not careful. You've got to, in fact, be careful. I told you this would be difficult to handle but I think it's about time we begin to face the fact that not I am saying this. I am saying that if you read Scripture, you will read over and over again, he comes to us not in power, but in weakness. He comes to us not in power, but in love. Don't get me wrong. One of these days, Jesus is coming back again. And the bad news is that when he comes the second time, he is coming in power Check the scriptures. Go to the later chapters of Matthew and the other gospels and you'll find that at the return of Christ, the power of God will once again be exercised and it won't be a very loving scene. Jesus says people will be running to the hills wishing that rocks fall upon them, wishing that they were never born on that day. To not have responded to his love is to make yourself open to the exercise of his power. Please let me tell you this. I am not saying we have a powerless God. I am saying we've got a God who sets aside his power, not because I said so, but because the Scripture says so. Love requires the relinquishing of power. It does in human relationship. It does in relationships between persons and God. You'll have a chance to come back at me on that. There's another characteristic of love. Love requires tremendous energy. Perhaps the best book on love outside of the Bible and The best secular book on love is a book written by a Frankfurt sociologist by the name of Eric Fromm. I think his book, The Art of Loving, is a classic. When I was teaching at the secular university, we always used that book, The Art of Loving. And he says the first characteristic of a loving relationship is an ability to concentrate in depth. There's a difference, I tell my students, between looking at a person and looking into a person. A big difference. Because young people only look at each other. And that's why they get turned on. They get all excited over what they see when they look at another person. She's beautiful. He's handsome. It's a real turn on. I was lecturing and some of my students weren't buying into what I was saying. And they were all into romance. They understood that kind of love. And after the lecture was over, some of these women gathered around me and they began arguing with me. And I got to tell you, I seldom lose arguments for three reasons. Number one is I'm very loud. (laughs) Secondly, I talk very fast. When you're loud and you're fast, you can win arguments even if you're not right. And the third thing, and you've probably experienced this, when I speak, I spit. <laughs> and so as these young women are confronting me, arguing with me, I'm loud, I'm fast, and I'm spitting, and I expect them to back off. But they don't. They keep on invading my private space, and finally I'm against the wall. And it looks like I'm going to go down for the count of ten And then I remember a story. I want to tell you about a friend of mine I told him. His name is Dale Moody. He talks with eloquence about the day his mother died. They were sitting at the breakfast table and she slipped off the chair onto the floor unconscious. Her husband of 54 years ran around and picked her up, carried her out to the pickup truck, the rest of the family chasing after him. He plunked her in the front seat of the pickup truck and, and hustled down the drive out onto the highway as fast as he could. He got her to the hospital, but she was dead on arrival. The day we buried her, Dale said, we put her in the ground. And then we retreated back to the old homestead. We were sitting on the back porch on our rocking chairs. And my father said, boys, because it was my brother and me on the, on the porch with him, what do you think mom doing right now? I mean, at this very moment, what do you think she's doing? Dale, who's a theologian and a brilliant one at that, said, I don't know much. I have this feeling, however, Dad, that she closed her eyes as she fell off the chair. And when she opened them, the first thing she saw was the face of Jesus. And The old man rocking on his chair said, oh, that's good, that's good. And then he started mumbling an old hymn that you older folks undoubtedly know. Oh, that will be Glory for me. Glory for me. Glory for me. When by his grace I shall look on his face, that will be glory. That will be glory for me. Now let's go back to the cemetery. They said it's 1030 at night. He said, you don't argue with a man who's just buried his wife for 54 years. So they go back to the cemetery. And the old man checks out the grave to make sure everything is just right. The flowers are in the right places. And then he stands back. And he grabbed one son with one arm, the other son in the other arm, and squeezed these boys close to him. And he said, boys, it was a good day. Your mother died. And she died just the way I wanted it to happen. Your mother went first. You know, when two people love each other like we love each other, Each wants the other one to go first. I didn't want to have her go through the loneliness that I'm going to have to experience. I didn't want her to experience the sense of loss that I'm experiencing. I'm glad she went first. Squeezing him again, he said, it was a good 54 years. And it ended just the way I wanted it to end. She went first. We can go home now. We can go home now. I hope you understand this, boys. It's been a good day. It's been a very good day. And as I finished telling them that story, these young women were in dead silence. And I knew I had them. (laughs) And I said, you couldn't possibly understand what those two old people had created between them over 54 years. You haven't a clue. But let me tell you this. Your romantic turn-ons are superficial compared to what they had. And there was no argument. There is a deeper kind of love. And Eric Fromm says, it comes through being able to enter into the other. There's a big difference between looking at a person and looking into a person. When was the last time you looked into a person? Looked into the person's eyes and reached through the person's eyes and down into the depths of that person's being and connected with the innermost recesses of that person's being? The core of that person's identity. When was the last time you did that? I say to husbands and wives, when was the last time you entered into each other? I didn't mean just look at each other, but look into each other's eyes. I tell you young people, do you even know what we're talking about when we say there's a difference between looking at a person and looking into a person? When Jesus looked into people, it was different. They said he knew what was in men. He knew what was in women. In the musical Jesus Christ Superstar, there's a scene in which Mary Uh, Magdalene is saying he looked at me like no one's ever looked at me before. Indeed, Jesus had the capacity to look into a person's eyes and reach into the depths of a person's being and connect. You say, how can I have that ability? That's where the Christian faith comes into high relief. The energy that enables you to enter into the depths of another comes through the infilling of the Holy Spirit. There is a special kind of love that comes when you are spiritually imbued, when the Holy Spirit is alive within you. The word for the Holy Spirit is power. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. In the end, it's the power of God. The word is dynamos in the original language. Dynamite. This energy. This energy. It's not a passive thing. Romantic love is passive. It's a turn on. This love is deliberate. You say, well, how do I get that energy? Last night, I spoke about prayer. you got to... Pray differently. Most of us pray like my son prayed when he was seven years old. Came into the living room one night and said, I'm going to bed. I'm going to be praying. Anybody want anything? (laughs) And you realize what was going through his mind. He was treating God as though he's some kind of transcendental Santa Claus And if you ask nicely, you'll get what you want. As a matter of fact, they brought me up believing that I had to have magic words at the end of the prayer. If you don't end the prayer by saying, "We ask all these things in Jesus' name? If you don't say that, you're not going to get an answer. Jeez, what kind of God do you have? Can't you imagine God saying, I really wanted to cure that lady, but they they didn't end the prayer right. The truth is that when... When you pray, it's got to be different. You know that verse from Isaiah. They who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength, renew their energy. They shall mount up like eagles and fly, they shall run and not be weary, they shall walk and not faint, they'll be energized. If you what wait upon the Lord. Let me ask you a question right now. When was the last time you waited in prayer? I mean, you start the prayer, you tell God a lot of stuff that God already knows, and when you finish, you say amen, and you're up and gone. It must be frustrating to be God. You haven't a chance to say anything to anybody. God never speaks to me. Of course you hang up on him before you give him a chance. Shut up. Or as the Bible says, be still. (laughs) Do you know what it's like to center down on Jesus? Not for a moment, not for two minutes, not for five minutes. To spend 10, 15 minutes concentrating in Jesus, emptying yourself of self, and allowing and inviting the Holy Spirit to flow into you. To let the Holy Spirit energize you from within. And when you are energized by Jesus, by his Holy Spirit, you are able to love in a new way you're able to look into a person's eyes and reach down into the depths of a person's being and connect. Have you been loving lately? Have you been loving lately? Or or has life become perfunctory? I'm an old guy now. I'm 83. You say, well, are you still sexy? (laughs) Not like I used to be. (laughs) I mean... When your wife's, you know you're old when your wife says, let's go upstairs and have sex. And you say, I can't do both. <laughs> I'm an old guy. I'm tired. But let me assure you, I am more loving than I've ever been before. For as the years go by and I grow in the spirit, I am energized to enter into the depths of another person's being. Martin Buber, the Hasidic Jewish philosopher, says there are two kinds of relationships. You can have an I-it relationship, or you can have an I-thou relationship. An I-it relationship, it means that the other person is a thing, an object to be used. We use things. How many people use Things. An I-it relationship, an I-thou relationship, is when you touch the sacredness of another person's being. The church has not taught a generation of young people how to connect with the sacredness of another person. The only thing that young people grow up knowing is what they see in the media. Hence, the partner becomes an it a thing to be used. That's where promiscuity comes from. The other person is an it to be used. The other person is not someone to be reverenced because you've touched the sacredness of the other person's being. Of all the people I've read, Nietzsche is perhaps the one who understands Christianity the best. Nietzsche said... I reject Christianity because it's about love. And I am one who is willing myself to power. The will to power. That's why Hitler loved Nietzsche. The will to power, to control, to dominate, to rule. And that's what he tried to do. Let me just say this. There are church splits, one after the other after the other. And there'll be over such things as gay marriage, but I guarantee you, it's not that. What goes on in the church are power plays. Who's going to control the church? Go to a church business meeting and watch them fight with each other as they play their power games with each other. How many churches split over who's going to be in control? Is the pastor going to be in control or the deacon's going to be in control? And there's a split. Here's what Jesus says Love one another even as I have loved you. When we deal with issues of sexuality, as you did undoubtedly today in the earlier session, you've got to realize you're dealing with power plays here. I mean, sexual harassment is a power game. Rape is not a sexual act. Every sociologist knows that. You don't have to rape somebody to get sexual gratification. Why do people do it? Because there is something within every individual, says Nietzsche, that wills to power, to control. Rape is a power act. It's forcing the other people into submission. What worries me is that sometimes the church actually advocates this kind of thing. Well, you say, doesn't the Bible say, wives, submit yourselves unto your husbands as under the law? How many times has that verse been used To oppress the dignity of a woman. Wives, submit yourselves. You say, well, it does say that. Yes, it does. But two verses earlier, it says what? Submit yourselves one to another in love. Doesn't it say that? Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. And then the next verse goes on to say what? Husbands, listen to this. Love your wives. Are you ready? As Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. How did Christ love the church? He gave up power to express his love for the church. Jeez. Don't you get it? Don't you get it? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And how does Christ love the church? I read to you from Philippians 2. He becomes its slave, its servant, it's slave. What woman would have any trouble becoming totally submissive to a man that defined her, himself as her slave? You say, well, who's in control? I mean, if she's being submissive and he's uh, acting like Jesus and, and becoming submissive all the way, uh, uh, if he's becoming her slave, who's in control? Who's going to call the shots? Here's where the Christian marriage comes into play in that the two of them together seek the leading of the Holy Spirit. Christ should be alive in the relationship. And as many as are led by the Spirit, they are the children of God. Before I take questions, one last thing. We're going through a very serious change in Western society as the feminist movement has come on board. Oh, how we have needed this movement. However, there is a tendency for things to swing too far in the wrong wrong direction sometimes, sometimes too far in the right direction. Women are absolutely right when they say we're sick and tired of being dominated by 50 million egocentric dominating husbands. But hear me, people, the answer to 50 million dominating, controlling husbands is not to create 50 million dominating, controlling women. Agreed? If each is playing the power game with the other, marriage becomes warfare. Let each submit himself and herself to one another in love, even as Christ submitted himself for you. And so I stop here to entertain questions about power, about love. And how much are you ready to accept the fact that God is among us in love? And in that love, we long sometimes for him to use his power. He has it, you know. He just doesn't use it. He, in fact, empties himself of power and takes upon himself the form of a servant as a slave. I pray for you all to have I-thou relationships in your marriages, but not just in your marriages, but in your everyday life. Intimacy in the power of the Spirit is not reserved for marriage. It's the greatest lovers of all time have not been married. Jesus wasn't married. St. Francis of Assisi wasn't married. Mother Teresa wasn't married. But they knew how to enter into intensive relationships with people. I love the fact that when she said, whenever I, I look into the eyes of a man dying of AIDS, I always have this strange sensation that Jesus is staring back at me. What a reality. To enter into another person... To touch the depths of another person and not only come to know the other person, but to feel the presence of Christ in the other person. That's what a Christian is able to do. To feel the presence of Christ in the other person. And Jesus says this in the 25th chapter of Matthew, and is as much as ye do it unto the least of these, you'll be meeting me. You'll be doing it unto me. Jesus waits to be loved in the other person. Jesus waits for you to encounter him as you enter into the other person. And so we read, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and the neighbor is yourself. It's the same thing. Of course it's the same thing. Because in loving your neighbor, if you enter through the power of the Spirit into the depths of the other person and connect with that person's essential spiritual self, You will have connected with God. You say, Well, can I connect with God without doing that? No. If any man says that he loves God and doesn't love his neighbor, that man says the scripture is a liar and the truth is not in him. This overcomes a lot of problems. How do we overcome our problems of racism and sexism and militarism? Through love. This is the great commandment. This is the great commandment. Let me stop there. And let me say it's time for you to come back and ask questions if you have questions to ask. All right? Take over.
1: Thank you. We've been feasting with uh, with you, Tony, but it's, we've uh, tried to create a space for about 15 minutes of um, a couple of questions. So does uh, anyone have a question they'd like to ask him out of uh, what Tony has just been speaking to? Deb, yes. Debbie. Uh, thank you so much, Dr Campola. That was fantastic. Um, I'm just trying to reconcile the um, what you were saying about power and love and... Um, what that looks like I guess in those situations where we know Jesus did heal and did use his power and also even today when obviously your example of the the pastor whose son died and everybody prayed but we also know that we are called to pray for things like healings and that that still happens today so I'm trying to reconcile in those situations is that God's power and love working together or God's authority and love working together when those things happen?
0: I'm not sure that I am able to answer the question. It's such a good question. Uh, The reality is that we are people who are daring to say something and this is what we're saying That love will accomplish what power never will accomplish. In the end, love is triumphant, not power. And it says in Scripture, in the end, he will subdue all powers. All principalities and powers will become subject to him. He will suppress all power. And it will all be love in the end. This incredible unthinkable reality that Nietzsche says, I don't believe, I don't believe that love can change the world. I don't, I I think the only way to change the world is through power. And indeed, the church in America has come to the point where it's believing that we can change the country if we just have enough power. We can change the world if we just have enough power. And you feel like saying, why didn't Jesus think of that? They were always pleading for him to use his power. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. Use your power. When, when they come to arrest him, Peter draws a sword and says, let's get on with it. Come on, Jesus. Let's beat these suckers down once and for all. I love the old song. We don't hear it here in Australia. It went like this in the United States. Go ahead. <laughs> Put the put the spear in my side, go ahead, put the nails in my hand, go ahead, put the thorns on my brow, but I'll rise again, I'll rise again, because there is no power on earth can keep me down. The civil rights movement in the United States had its high peak of success with a march of people who left the city of Selma and marched to the capital of the state, Montgomery. And they came to a bridge, undoubtedly on this side of the the great ditch. You've seen that film clip of the people coming to the bridge. And Sheriff Clark and all of his policemen and National Guards people behind him with their guns and their vicious dogs. And Sheriff Clark yells, turn back. And the response is, we've come too far to turn back now. I'm counting to 10, and if you don't turn back, we're going to attack you. And he counted from 10 to 9 to 8 to 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. And they charged these people with clubs and vicious dogs and fire hoses. And you watch these people being beaten down and knocked all over the bridge. And I was teaching at the University of Pennsylvania at that time and watched that scene on television in the student union building. And the students were there aghast at what was happening. And, in the, and they were going, oh. And a friend of mine who is a Christian said, we just won. The civil rights movement has just won. You say, how do you figure you won? They're getting beaten. They're getting clobbered. They're getting crucified. You're right. But we Christians, we have a nasty habit of rising again. For there is no power on earth that can keep love down. Amen? I mean, this is radical stuff, I realize. And it's questioning. And the question you raised, I can't answer. You know, I don't understand how God operates. I really don't. I do know that there's an inverse relationship between love and power. And I do pray for miracles. I, uh, I have a friend of mine who was a great friend of Rabbi Heschel, the great Talmudic scholar. And he asked Rabbi Heschel, do you believe in miracles? And here's a profound statement. And Heschel said, no, but I've learned to depend on them. Isn't that the way we all are? Somehow, we pray and long for the miracle in prayer. We pray and long for the miracle in prayer. Now, here's the good news. Anything that is lost here shall be overcome. I mean, this world is not the end. Death is not the final word. There is a rising up. Thank you for the question. I wish I could answer it. Yes, back there. Maybe I can do better on the next question.
1: (laughs) Thank you and thank you for your address this afternoon and my question relates to the previous question and I want to suggest that perhaps we can answer that question by making the distinction between power over and power to. The dunamis in the New Testament that is spoken about is a power too, a capability and ability and that's the power that's ascribed to God and to Jesus whereas um, I think you're talking about power over in human power and are you perhaps taking a principle from sociology and using that to explain theology when really... That is, um, we are trying to talk about the transcendent and something new and revelatory um, experience in the New Testament.
0: That was a very good addition. Uh, May I say, uh, that may be saying better what I was saying. What I was saying is there's a difference between power and authority. That in the end, the authority of Jesus was earned on a hill far away on an old rugged cross. If you ask me why I obey him, it's simple. After what he did for me, there isn't anything I wouldn't do for him. I was on a train leaving Victoria Station in London. Opposite me were two men in their 50s. We were about 10 minutes out of the station and one of them had a seizure. He rolled off the seat onto the floor, shaking. I hadn't seen an epileptic seizure for years because we've got them under control with medicine. His friend moved quickly, picked him up off the floor, put him back on the seat, took off his coat, put it around him like a blanket because the man was shaking, wiped the beads of perspiration from his brow, rolled up a newspaper, put it in his mouth so he wouldn't bite his tongue. And the man shook and shook and shook, uncontrolled, shaking, for about a minute or so, and then it was over. And the man fell into a deep sleep. It was then that the friend turned to me. His friend turned to me and said, please forgive us. We were in Vietnam together. He's he's British, I'm an American. We were wounded. I lost my right leg. He pulled up his trousers and showed me that he had an artificial leg. My friend had a a hand grenade explode in front of him and his, his chest was filled with shrapnel and he couldn't move without feeling agonizing pain. The helicopter that had been sent to take us to the hospital was blown out of the sky by an enemy rocket and we knew that all hope was gone. He said, Mr. I don't know how long we laid there, but there came a point at which my friend stood up in spite of the pain that he felt when he moved, the agony that he felt when he moved. He stood up, and then incredibly he reached down and grabbed my shirt, and he began pulling me through the jungle, step by step, screaming in pain at every step. And Mr., I told him to get out of there, but he would never get us both out, but he did. I found out he had this condition, and the doctor says somebody has to be with him every moment of every day to know what injection he needs and what care he needs when he has one of these seizures. Because we can't know when they will hit him. Somebody has to be with him all the time, and I'm um, not somebody. He hasn't had a seizure like this for over a month. I didn't expect to have one today, but he did. I hope you'll forgive us. I said, hey, fella, don't apologize to me. I'm a speaker. Whenever I can come up with a great story, (laughs) I'm thrilled. This is a great story. And he said this, please, don't be impressed. After what he did for me, there isn't anything I wouldn't do for him. That's the cross, people. When Jesus speaks, he doesn't have to play power games. He speaks as one having authority. What he did for you, what he did for me. When I survey the wondrous cross, on which the Prince of Glory died, look at his hands, his feet, his side. So in blood flow mingled down, demands what? My life, my all. Those great hymns, we need to remember them. I love being here and listening to all this new music you Aussies are coming up with. But I do love the old hymns. As a matter of fact, if I get to heaven and they have a, an overhead projector, I'm checking out. I love the new music, but I love the old hymns who have great theology to them. That that sacrifice on Calvary demands my awe. Uh, well, I didn't answer any question at all. Uh, any, anybody else want to take a shot at me and show me for my superficiality once again? Uh, not at all, Tony, not at all. Thank you very much. I, I always wanted to ask a question. Um, just to relate to what you were saying about your spiritual practices in order to tap into the, yeah. the well of love, uh, I guess it's a question of both, both in related to what you were saying about dwelling on Jesus, but also when did you realize this? I mean, because I know myself as a young man that, that silence was seriously yeah. overrated, you know? Uh, uh. I real, realized it as the Pentecostal movement broke out. I said last night I'm not Pentecostal in the sense that I don't, I'm not into tongues, but I see the legitimacy of the whole movement. I mean, I am impressed by these brothers and sisters who have had Pentecostal experiences. And I wanted to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And I resented one thing about the Pentecostals they said, We have a way of accessing the Holy Spirit. And I say, Thank you, Jesus, and thank God that you do. But don't think you have a corner on the Holy Spirit. Let me tell you what Jesus said. Jesus said, The Spirit bloweth where it listeth. You cannot tell from whence it comes and where it's going. So it is with people who are filled with the Spirit. Let me say... I applaud Pentecostalism and what's happening to my Pentecostal friends. It didn't work for me very well. But that same spirit that is in them, I contend, is in me. But it didn't come the same way. It came through spiritual disciplines that I learned. And interestingly enough, the Roman Catholics are far advanced on this. Their theology left much to be desired. Their spiritual practices ought to be imitated. When the Reformation came along, we threw out everything that the Catholics had. We threw out their theology. I'm with that. I'm, I'm, I'm Baptist. My theology is not Roman Catholic. And I'm praising God that Catholicism is becoming more and more Protestant. If you talk to a Catholic priest, he'll tell you that your salvation is by grace, through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. That's different than it was when I was a boy. They're more and more into grace. They're more and more into understanding things from our perspective. They're learning from us. And it's time for us to learn from them. The Desert Fathers, St. Francis, St. Ignatius. These people developed ways of praying, and we can learn from them. Like I said, a, a professor at Spring Arbor University, which is a Methodist school, got together with me and we wrote a book, The God of Intimacy in Action. And we wrote the book because I'm a social activist. I'm into political action. I'm into social action. I'm into demonstrating. I'm into getting arrested. I'm into all of those things. Having said that, the most common thing that I see happening in the Christian community is burnout. And it happens to people who I consider spiritual giants. Bill Hybels is a friend of mine. He's a spiritual giant. I think he burned out. And we weren't there for him when he needed us to revitalize him, to pray with him. Incidentally, the scripture makes it clear Not only do we need to pray in private and stillness and quietude. Be still and know that I am God. Wait upon the Lord. The next verse is, and in quietude and in stillness he will come into you. Oh. But let me just say that the Bible also calls us to experience the the power of the Holy Spirit in the context of fellowship. There are times when I'm inwardly dry. And when I go to prayer, I don't get the infilling that I was hoping for. At the end of her life, Mother Teresa's diary was released, and she gave testimony to this dryness of the soul that she was experiencing. The Catholics have a word for it. The dark night of the soul. Jesus calls us into relationships with other Christians. Wherever, listen to this, two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. We need Christian friends to come and pray with us. And when we ourselves are unable to access the spirit, the good news, if we gather together with friends, together we can experience the infilling of the Holy Spirit in ways when it doesn't happen to us alone. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a book called Life Together. And he talked about what I was talking about last night, the intimacy with God that you have in aloneness and in stillness. And he says, but this needs to be nurtured in the context of togetherness. I say this to my students. I'll be speaking to them in a couple of weeks when they return to the university, and I'll get the first shot at them at chapel. And I'll say to them, If you think you're going to live the Christian life here on the university campus as an individual, you're doomed. You need a prayer partner. Better still, you need maybe more than one prayer partner. And you need to be together regularly, correcting one another, edifying one another, building each other up. I talked about the discipline, of solitary prayer, of surrendering in stillness. And I have biblical support for that. And Jesus said to the Pharisees, what? And when you pray, I think you sometimes like to hear yourself talking. I'll tell you, I was a pastor for years when I was doing my graduate studies. I loved preaching. I hated leading the pastoral prayer because I'm Baptist. You say, what's that got to do, do with it? Baptists are not allowed to read their prayers. We've got to make them up on the spot. You read a prayer, you can hear people whispering, He reads his prayers. You notice he reads his prayers. <laughs> I found it so difficult. And I often sensed that I was just mouthing words. It was a good time to make the church announcements. <laughs> Dear Lord, be with the women's group this meeting on Thursday night at 8 o'clock. <laughs> May the Spirit of God nurture them as they meet. And be with the youth group as they take the retreat this coming weekend. Bless them and, and bless Mary Jones who is waiting for young people to sign up. It was a great way to make church announcements. You say, but were you really connecting with Jesus? Very seldom in the pastoral prayer did I do that because I was so conscious of what the people were hearing that I wasn't sufficiently connected with the Lord. Jesus says, Camp Paulo, I hear your many words. And they have their reward. There's something to be said for that kind of stuff. But if you really want to pray, what does Jesus say? Go into the closet. Shut the door. Shut the world out. And the God you meet in secret will reward you openly. So in the spiritual disciplines, I say there needs to be that centering prayer where you drive everything out of your mind except for Jesus. And in the quietude and the stillness of the hour, allow him to invade you and fill you And energize you to love. To energize you, let me say it again, energize you to love. Eric Fromm, in his wonderful book, The Art of Loving, talks about the exhausting energy dissipation that occurs in love. But he says, I'm not sure where that energy comes from. And I wish I could talk to Eric Fromm and say, I know where it comes from. It comes from God. And he will empower you. Loving as God wants you to love, is not romantic. It's even beyond philos. It's agape. It's a spiritual-generated love. I suggest that you get my book, and I got 35 books, and that's one of them, but it's the only one in which I go through spiritual exercises. Uh, We thought of writing, giving it the title, uh, Ignatius for Dummies. Uh, or Catholic thought for Protestants, or something like that. (laughs) People, we've got something to learn from the Catholics, and the Catholics have something to learn from us. I don't think they would be into grace as much as they are these days if it wasn't for we Protestants. And I don't think we would be learning spiritual disciplines if it wasn't for the Catholics, because we've been very superficial in our prayer lives. I can't go much deeper than that, Uh, There is this thing called Lectio Divina. Do you pray the scriptures? There's a good phrase. Do you pray the scriptures? You know. uh, Do you open the Bible and say, okay, Spirit of God, speak to me through these scriptures. And wait patiently and let the Lord speak to you through the scriptures. Lectio Divina, they call it. And then there's the prayer of examine, which I talked about. And then there's uh, the centering prayer. These are things we've got to learn. I wish I could give better answers. These are such good questions. I hate good questions. (laughs) I want simple questions. One more question, and then we'll kind of wrap this up. One more.
1: Deb's going too, and this is someone else.
0: But she she asked a good question last time that your I didn't last, answer. She she's your entitled last time. to another one.
1: Is one over here. She got your last time.
0: Okay, we got two more questions.
1: One and zero. Um, I know that a lot of people who are bitter against God or or unbelievers, they do use the excuse like you mentioned before about how where was God when my son was dying of cancer? Where was He when all this? Where was He with all the starving? in Africa and everything else, where was he when the Jews were being murdered uh, by the Nazis? And all that, and it's true that, as you said, that, uh, God doesn't enforce his power at this point, but at the same time, we need wisdom from God how to actually answer these people with authority. And this is something that I know, I know I am lacking in such wisdom, I don't know how to answer world carnal minded people or non believers or even angry Christians. Look, like how do is there a way we can actually? Is there any answer to such questions? Why does God allow these things to happen without intervening? Even even as you mentioned how people pray for someone who's sick. In our church we've prayed for six people, yet they still died, or I prayed for my parents when they were dying, and my cousin, and yet... And I still believe, and in the end, things are going to happen in this world, but it would be good to have the wisdom to know how to actually answer people who actually are genuinely seeking answers. Obviously, there are going to be people who, deep down, they don't love God, they, that one not have anything to do with God, so they will, they will use these answers as cop-out excuses, but there are others who genuinely are crying out for genuine answers, and that's something that I would like and imagine many of us here would like to know how to answer people with, with authority, just like how Jesus could answer people, not as one of the scribes, but as one with authority. Thank you.
0: Well, all I can say is, uh, I can answer the question. And whenever they pose the question, as you just did, we're stymied. And it's about time that we look back eyeball to eyeball and say simply this, I don't know. That has more credibility than the kind of stupid answers that we usually give. Just say, I don't know. I don't understand, but I do believe that God cares. When, they, when his wife asked Martin Luther, where was God when our son died? Martin Luther answered, the same place he was when his son died. The same place. I mean, Jesus on the cross, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Father, where are you? now that I need you. It's a good, there is no answer, is there? And we have to be humble enough to say we haven't any answer. And maybe even humble enough to say maybe there will never be an answer. But I do know this, that God loves you and that God is there for you and empower you. When they ask me questions like that, I always go to the parables of Jesus. He said there are two houses, one built on the rock and one built on the sand. The storms hit both houses in his story. The house built on the rock has not spared the storm. The difference between the two, the one that's built on the rock and the one that's built on the sand, as the house that's built on the sand collapses. The house built on the rock endures. I don't know uh, so much, but I do know this. I do know this, that the God who loves us, when that suffering comes, will empower us to endure and to survive. The storms will come. He won't use his power to stop the storms. He will empower you to endure the storms. I was amazed at how God empowered Jewish people at Auschwitz. I had a radio show once a week in Philadelphia. It was an early morning show. and I went to see this movie, Schindler's List. I guess you showed that over here about this uh, man who, a uh, German industrialist, who saved so many Jews uh, in, during the Holocaust. And I talked about how wonderful the movie was and what it talked about and what it said to me. I didn't realize it, but Jewish people in the Philadelphia area monitor the radio shows looking for signs of anti-Semitism on the air. And they heard my show. And they called me the next day and said, that was so well done. We'd like to invite you to be with us. And I said, and, and where will that happen and when will that happen? The answer is simple, he said. There's a group of us that get together at a motel right near the Philadelphia airport. It's Tuesday morning at nine o'clock. I said, perfect. I have a plane at noon. I'll stop by and meet with you guys. At this motel ballroom, so I went to this ballroom, and there were about 35 people in the room. And I listened to these people who had been through Auschwitz. They showed me the markings on their arms. It was painful to listen to this, and yet inspiring. I can remember the first question I asked, having survived the Holocaust. When you're here in America, and you hear somebody speaking with a German accent, How do you react? And I still remember this Jewish man looking at me and saying, I was just a boy when they put me in a boxcar. And as we traveled out of France and across Germany to Auschwitz in Poland, it took a week. We had almost nothing to eat. They wouldn't allow us to clean the excrement out out of the... out of the boxcar. The place stunk. And we were thirsty and we were hungry. And the train would go for hours and then it would stop at nightfall. And we would sit there all night in the boxcar. And he said, just about every night when we were going through Germany, just about every night, people would sneak out of the woods and come up to the boxcar, and through the slats would push some food and little containers of water. And I remember how precious those moments were. And then he said to me, and whenever, whenever I hear somebody with a Jewish accent, or rather with a German accent, I always say to myself, perhaps this is the child of one of those people who rescued me in my hour of need. You say, where does somebody get that kind of forgiving attitude? It's a gift of God. You say, but he's not a Christian. I believe that God can operate through people who aren't Christians. I certainly believe that God operated through Mandela. As many of you know, I'm pretty close to Bill Clinton. He called on me to be his pastor after the Lewinsky scandal, to carry him through. And I did, meeting with him regularly, and still stay in touch with him by phone. He told me about when Nelson Mandela came to the White House. We were having dinner together, and I said, Mr. Mandela, when you were released from prison, I got Chelsea up. That's his daughter. I got her up. It was 3 in the morning our time. I wanted her to see this historic moment. And as you walked across the courtyard to the gate of the prison, the television camera focused on your face. I have never seen such anger and such hatred so visible on a man's face. That's not the Nelson Mandela I know today. And Bill Clinton said, Mandela said to me, You're the first one that has called that to my attention. I remember walking out of the cell block and walking across that courtyard and being angry and saying to myself, They're going to set me free. To what? My family is gone. My cause is dead. My friends have been murdered. And they're releasing me to what? And I hated them. And I heard a voice say to me, Nelson, for 29 years, you were their prisoner. But you were always a free man. Don't let them make you into a free man. Only to turn you into their prisoner. Whoa. Whoa. I believe that sometimes God operates outside the church. And speaks to people outside the church. Our God is greater than Christianity. I still hold Jesus as the only way to salvation. But I don't think God is limited to our religious institutions. Well, I think I've said enough. And I think. We ought to wrap this up, except I need to have a closing word. Our brother with the water. Did you see the water thing? And I hope he's going to be out there to help people sign up. Sam. Where is Sam? Yeah. There he, he is. He's he may there. have sneaked out. Now he's over there. But let me just say please don't underestimate the power of love. We've got the UN. We've got governments trying to change the world to improve things. Let me give you the statistics. 25 years ago, 25 years ago, 45,000 people, children, 45,000 children, every single day died of either starvation or diseases related to malnutrition. Did you get that figure? 45,000 a day? Today, 25 years later, it's down to 17,000. And guess who has been most responsible for cutting the death rate of children around the world, who have built the hospitals, who have sent the doctors, who have sent the nurses, go to Africa, go to Asia, see who they are. And over and over again, you'll see church people doing it. The water thing. 25 years ago, one out of every 12 persons, one out of every six persons on the world One of every six persons in the world had no access to clean drinking water with all the diarrhea and sickness and death that causes. One out of six persons had no access to clean drinking water. Today, it's one out of 12. The situation has improved 100%. And who has drilled most of these wells? It's church groups. It's your men and your women going overseas, drilling wells. You saw that well. It was probably drilled by church people. That's the church. 25 years ago, 80% of the population of the planet was illiterate. Today, it's down to 20%. Guess who has done most of the literacy training in this world today? It's been the church of Jesus Christ. People. The church is the greatest success story that's ever come down the pike, and you'd never know it from listening to guys in the pulpit. Oh, the church is so anemic. It's so feeble. It's so... Cut it out, people. We are doing incredible things. And it's about time we give the church a cheer instead of a put-down. So I end it with a very simple line. I want you to cheer for the church and its greatness and its accomplishments. And it hasn't even begun to do the great things that love can do. Love through the church is doing more than all the power of governments. So three cheers for the church. Hip, hip. Hip, hip. Hip, hip.